We'd like to thank Rays for being the presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast mini-series on digital assets. Rays is a Bahamian startup that's using distributed ledger technologies, aka blockchain tech, to build a platform which offers investors and everyday people easy access to liquid capital markets. To learn more about this offering and to discover how to digitize your company's assets, visit getraise.io. I'm Andy Lemassou, and in this episode, the second in our three-part series on digital assets, I chat with two gifted distributed ledger proponents who are co-architects of the African Digital Assets Framework. First up, we have a Kenyan senior medical student who also happens to be the co-founder and chief operating officer of EOS Nairobi, where he leads product development and decentralized protocol research. He's also an affiliate scholar with the Institute for Blockchain Studies in New York. Also on the show is the Bahamian technology and securities lawyer turned founder and CEO of Rays. He is a published researcher specializing in regional trade financing and international investment arbitration. He also serves as an advisor to the Africa Blockchain Alliance and the Agentic Group, alongside advising partners such as Coindesk, MIT, and IBM. Now listen in to broaden your understanding of what constitutes a digital asset and learn why the adoption of a pragmatic pan-African framework for dealing with digital assets might well be in everyone's best interests. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Rays. Hi, I'm Felix Masharia. I'm the head of operations for EOS Nairobi, a blockchain startup uh, that uh, hosts a node for the EOS blockchain protocol. I'm also the head of community and strategy for Africa Digital Asset Framework. My name is Marvin, originally from the Bahamas. I am a venture technology and securities lawyer, chief executive officer of RAISE, a distributed ledger technology startup based in the Bahamas and Kenya, and strategy and lead at African Digital Asset Foundation and Framework. And Felix and I are co-trustees of the foundation. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Felix, and welcome to you, Marvin. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. So Marvin, in as much as I said welcome to you as well, I really should say welcome back. This is your second time on the show, man. How are you doing? I missed it. This time I'm not in Johannesburg. Yeah, yeah. we're actually <laughs> recording this remotely. A really important topic, we're here to discuss the notion of digital assets with specific reference to how that notion is being framed on the continent and its implications for Africans um, everywhere in the world. But before we get to that, uh, what's trending in your life, guys? Felix, what's, what's going down, man? We're yet to meet in person, but I kind of feel like I know quite a bit about you because of Marvin and all, all the conversations I have with him. Yeah. But uh, what's trending? Give, give our listeners a sense of what your day-to-day in Kenya is like and, and what's trending right now. Um, so I, I run a startup in Kenya. It's not easy work, but we do it <laughs> quite well. Uh, basically, what we do is we host a node for a blockchain protocol called EOS. So on any typical day, it's just to make sure that the node is up and running. But we also do decentralized application development. Uh, this basically means applications that are resting on the blockchain uh, technology or protocols. And we develop that. So we are a dub development center. Uh, the other thing that we do quite proactively is we do a lot of developer training on how to develop on EOS. So this uh, particular experience is combined 
um, especially around decentralized governance, is what has enabled me to contribute uh, quite actively to ADAF. So we're going to talk a little bit about ADAF later on. ADAF obviously being the African Digital Asset Framework. You guys are primarily on the show to talk us through what's essentially a pretty idealistic um, but well-written white paper that we're going to get to later. But, you know, Felix, I'm more interested for now to understand how a Kenyan gets involved in this and what's, what was your entree into the space? And maybe while you're at it, what is EOS for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with, uh, with the jargon? Okay. Uh, so how I got into the space was from reading a book back in 2016. Um, it's called Blockchain, A Blueprint for the New Economy by Melanie Swan. So I read the book and it was quite inspiring. Around 2017, got involved in the whole cryptocurrency space. And I just finished a research degree in the University of Nairobi. So I wrote to Melanie and asked her to, you know, I, I, I do research, I can help you guys because I don't see anybody from Africa. So taking that step, uh, she gave me the job. And that's how I ended up researching a lot around blockchain. So EOS is a blockchain protocol. So most people most likely have heard of Bitcoin or possibly Ethereum. EOS sort of like fits in that category. But it's a technology that you can build anything on. So you can build a, a digital currency, like there's an EOS token out there. But you can also build land registries, health uh, data registries, financial applications on their technology. So in that respect, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more like Ethereum versus, say, Bitcoin. Yes, 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 yes. in that regard. In the regard that you can actually build smart contracts on the blockchain uh, protocol. Okay. Marvin, hey. Yeah. <laughs> For those of our listeners who haven't heard him on the show, perhaps you missed the episode Marvin was on. Uh, every time you come on the show, Facebook's done something wrong. <laughs> last time. <laughs> That's your favorite topic, was there, bro. Hey, my guy, like, <laughs> we can't help it. No, but the last time you were on the show, um, we called it, I think, the, the breach of trust. I think that was the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Yeah. And now, only a few weeks uh, only a few weeks ago, Facebook, of course, announcing that major data breach. What is up with you, bro? What, what omens are you bringing us, brother? Yeah. I'm trying, man. That was a long time ago. When was that? That was March? It was March. Wow. But listen, what's trending in your world, man? Trending in our world is... Over at Ray's. Ray's, Ray's has been doing well, man. We're very lucky. We uh, have grown to a team of about seven people. Since mm -hmm. last time I talked to you, it was more like two people. Yeah. Um, we have... We're launching some pilots, some clients in the next couple of weeks. We're tokenizing real assets on the continent and for people who who've heard tokenize it for the first time we're essentially taking real world shares dead instruments and putting them on distributed ledger technology software to make it such that people can transfer and buy shares from anywhere in the world so we're, we're a lot closer to accomplishing that goal and as we started building that we realized how many regulatory blocks existed to that software and we also realized the potential to transfer digitized assets anywhere in the world which means there's a potential to actualize tenets of Pan-African thought. The idea that people of African descent, people in the Pan-African communities around the world could transfer digital assets between each other for the first time. So the African Digital Asset Foundation and framework was born out of that. So we, we've been busy, man, and the team is getting bigger and, and more pronounced. So we have a little base in the Bahamas, my country, and then now in Kenya. We operate out of Kenya. Great. And so how do you see the evolution of how the notion of digital assets is, is progressing within mainstream African tech ecosystem? 
Uh, how, how do you see that change? Because I, I feel like the default definition for most people, I think in the mainstream, even in and outside of the ecosystem, is to think of digital assets within the context of cryptocurrency. But what are you observing given given the work you do and, and given some of the roadblocks you've encountered? We're in the first phase. I think I'd like people to think of distributed ledger technology. I don't use the word blockchain, so I'll just use distributed ledger technology. Why, why is that important to you? Why would we want to be chained in blocks, bro? Distributed ledger technology, like a, a blockchain is actually just a distributed ledger. The invention behind a blockchain is the fact that there's a ledger that's distributed and automatically updated across a node of computers. It's not actually a chain of blocks. So the actual proper term is distributed ledger technology. And at the same time, uh, for the African Little Asset Framework, we use the concept, something called distributed pan-African economies. The idea that you can have economies of pan-African communities that share assets, resources, and economic wealth. And we are distributed people. The word diaspora originates from the term scattered, and scattered means distributed. So we're distributed people. So distributed ledger technology kind of fits with our cultural distribution around the world. And Felix, why do you think these definitions matter? <laughs> potato, potato, I don't know. They clearly do to you guys because you spent a great deal of time over the last several months or so pouring over what is now a white paper that gives voice to ideas that I've heard Marvin share with me, certainly, but a lot of these conversations be had now reduced to what is 37 odd pages worth of ideology and definitions. Why is it so important that we that we start to define the stuff and why are the definitions important? I think the definitions are important for one, because technology is changing exponentially. So like Marvin has said, why would we want to be locked in blocks? I mean, distributed ledger technologies now are evolving so fast. You'll hear of hash graph, you'll hear of uh, direct acyclic graphs like uh, IOTA and Tango. So it was very important for us from the beginning uh, to set something that might not be a cake uh, in the next five years. When it comes to definition of pan-African, we are more interested in communicating that everyone of African descent, all of us uh, who have come or who are Afro-descendants, share not only a common past, but also a common destiny. So our past has been tough all over the world, not only on the continent, and our destiny is sort of like tied together. And there's a lot that you can achieve uh, through unity. And these definitions I'll add to that are very important, Antile, because this distributed ledger technologies and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and these digital assets are just the foundation of the fourth industrial revolution, which we are living through right now. This We're literally living through an economic revolution, a, a significant time in human history. And we expect and hope that a lot of people will be looking back at this period of time, just like we look back to the first, second, and third revolution to understand how human history and cultures developed. And when people look back at this time, we have to be sure that they're looking back at the words that we use because the words will define how we think about these technologies. So reviving the idea of pan-Africanism, pan-Africanism at its root is exactly what Felix just said. You have a distributed set of people who can unite and create a common destiny for economic prosperity. And that concept has influenced every single regional organization on the continent and abroad. And we have to revive that term. Distributed ledger technology is actually what a blockchain is. That is like the proper term for it. So these words are very important, man, because they set in the foundation for an economic revolution. And we hope people look back at this time to see what African people were doing. So help me here, guys. I think the current obsession with 
what I consider the first wave of the most high-profile distributed ledger-related applications. I, it's, I think it's fair to say that cryptocurrency has by far been the most mainstream application that has leveraged those technologies. And I think as a result, there seems to be a challenge in thinking about the notion of a digital asset beyond one that has a, a co-assigned value and the ability to capture value. As well. So if yes. we think about it in the context of every fiat currency out there at the moment, I think it's quite clear in the mind of any economist, any sort of, you know, trader, frankly, almost any man or woman in the street, you know, the value of a dollar or a rand or a shilling and the notion of how that shilling will either continue to capture value, hold value or represent a trade or exchange of value. Now, given that, help our listeners broaden their notion of what constitutes an asset. You know, as part of this debate, we have to think about platforms or infrastructure. And a lot of that infrastructure is yet to realize its full potential, in which case none of us can really right now figure out what value it'll add to society or what economic enablement will it provide uh, business and things of that nature. How do we wrap our minds around all of these things, given most people's initial introduction to distributed ledger technologies? So a couple of things there. The, you're entirely correct. The first wave of distributed ledger technology is cryptocurrencies and idea of financial payments. Think of Bitcoin as a digital asset. That digital asset is a currency. So right now I could take out my phone and send any number of dollars represented Bitcoin to someone's phone anywhere on the other side of the world instantly, securely, and for less than a couple of pennies. If I want to do that same transaction using traditional banking infrastructure, it would cost me a lot of money. It would be extremely limited. I probably could only send a couple thousand at a time. And it wouldn't be directly to the person. It would be through some bank account that they then have to go ask for permission to access. Bitcoin is the first most powerful digital asset because it provided such a value proposition to people. Banking structures on the continent and in my country and in countries like ours and communities like ours were never really developed by us. So the idea of having a currency that can transfer anywhere instantly is a significant value proposition, and that's just where we are. It, it added a significant value to our lives. So the first phase is financial infrastructure, people sending money and people sending financial instruments. But at the very base of it, Bitcoin is just a digital asset. It's a digital asset that allows people to send assets around the world through internet connections. That same technology, distributed ledger technology or, or blockchain, that makes Bitcoin possible can be used to create other different types of assets. You can take a share instrument, like I said earlier, on a distributed ledger technology software and transfer it just as inexpensively, cheaply, and securely as a Bitcoin. You can take a land title. You can take a vote you can take an identity, you can take pieces of data, any asset that people can digitally represent can be transferred using this technology as easily as Bitcoin. So for now, we we kind of in that phase, and you asked me earlier about where it's going, we're in that phase of financial instruments for distributed ledger technology, but very soon the, the entire world is moving towards realizing that this can be used across every single sector that we exist. I would... I would say that we should think about this as a digitization of human behavior. At the very root of human behavior is the transfer of economic value. And the transfer of economic value determines everything. It determines our regulations and laws. It determines how we interact with people. It shapes cultures. It shapes trade patterns. It shapes everything. 
economic value. So if we had digitized an economic value, by definition, it's a revolution of our current societies. So we um, would definitely be going towards that. It's just we're almost transitioning towards it, towards the idea that digital assets can be used for anything. And most importantly, they can be accessed by anybody with a cell phone and a mobile device. So Felix, you know, help Mm. listeners of ours who are part of the sort of traditional capitalist system here on the continent who struggle with how do we put a value to what we're talking about right now? I mean, these are people who are nervous or skittish about the notion of cryptocurrency because, uh, let's be fair, it does require the buy-in to a story or uh, an ideology, uh, a set of values, and then it also requires requires society to sort of cooperatively determine an assigning of value or come to a consensus on the assigning of, of a value for, for something like a currency to exist or have inherent value of any kind, right? And so that makes people nervous because they're like, listen, gold I get, you know, this cryptocurrency stuff I, I don't, but I feel perhaps the conversation also needs to move towards thinking about the infrastructure. So in your context, how would you go about explaining to a traditional capitalist here on the continent the value of a platform which is again a digital asset of an, of another kind like eos the the point i will be making will be digital assets need to rest on secure technology so it can be a representation of assets that are in the real world uh, diamonds real money gold houses companies and so on the only issue is Current infrastructure right now, like uh, the internet, does not allow us to exchange these assets um, securely, uh, transparently, uh, transparently, sorry, uh, faster. So we have issues around the transfer of intangible assets. Uh, we live in a world today where banks are hacked every other day. Uh, they will be the greatest beneficiaries of this technology. So what we're saying is we can take assets that are in the real world and have a digital representation of those assets that is safe. And if you think about that, it works with the definition of an asset, which is that an asset must be rare. Uh, an asset should be fungible. Uh, I mean, if everyone had gold, it, would, it wouldn't have the quality uh, that it currently has. So how do you stop people from creating assets that end up being all over the place, like uh, the fraud we can hear I, Can I interrupt uh, you and just cuts. say, Felix, so would, it be, right in my, would it be right to compare yes. the infra- that infrastructure you're describing to how difficult it might have been to describe the asset that is the mobile telco network um, MTN has under its control currently? And, and how difficult that might have been to describe to an individual who'd never seen a smartphone or, or a phone of any kind? Is, is that kind of where you're getting at? Yes, yes, that's that's really it. Because at the beginning of mobile networks, I don't think people saw the value in these networks. And these networks have benefited from something called network effects. There are a lot of people who can exchange value on one platform. So blockchain and other distributed ledger technologies take this and like blow it up on a global scale. So for something like EOS, we can be able to interact with somebody in Ukraine. I can be able to transfer assets today to somebody in US with minimal fees. It is fast. It is secure. He's sure as so long as he's getting uh, this particular ID, he's getting it from me and so on and so forth. 
So Marvin, I have a question now because I think using the analogy I've just introduced, isn't the challenge the question of, listen, I understand that MTN owns this vast network of, you know, hard infrastructure that allows millions of Africans to basically communicate via mobile phones. Now that I get, and I I can appreciate how that investment on their part is currently represented on their balance sheet. In the context of this new wild world of distributed of distributed ledgers and I suppose the internet first and then distributed ledger technology, which has you know since leveraged the, the, the internet to great effect. How do we frame who should own this infrastructure? How how should we frame who should have a stake in the ownership of this infrastructure and, and the, the value it creates? People should have a direct stake in this ownership structure. What Felix just described, when he said you can send a transaction right now to someone in Ukraine, <clears throat> excuse me, just like you said, we can have mobile networks and people can transfer things peer-to-peer between themselves. Distributed ledger technologies make possible for the first time to people securely send assets between people, which means that the new infrastructure that we're building for our societies on top of the internet and digitally represented assets is being driven by people which means that those people need to have a say in how those technologies are created. So the most important thing when you create an infrastructure, especially in this kind of space and especially in the kind of revolution human history is going through right now, is that you need technological infrastructure, you need regulatory infrastructure. When I mentioned earlier that economic value determines everything about our societies, it also determines entire legal systems we've built, which means that technological infrastructure needs to be accompanied by regulatory infrastructure. And people should be involved in creating both of those. Around the world, in distributed ledger technology industries around the world, you have tons of companies, just like Felix's companies, just like ours. We're creating technological infrastructure and regulatory infrastructure. At the same time we're building our technologies, we're advancing open source available guidelines and resources for how these technologies work. Because we can't just build technology in silos. These things have to be built for people, and people should be involved in building those technologies as well. So the new infrastructure you build in is people-driven. And the advantage that presents for pan-African communities is that our people are distributed over the entire world. Just like Felix can send an asset between Kenya and Ukraine, I can send an asset between Kenya and the Bahamas, my country, instantly. That is transformational. Because now you could have people who have similar cultures, similar backgrounds, had similar colonial histories that created similar societies, who can now interact with each other economically. And Mm -hmm. if that's possible, and if we live in through a world right now where you have more media available out of the African continent, you have more of a resurgence of the culture of Afrofuturism, which is the binding of pan-African communities. You have the social and political and cultural barriers that are being reduced between people on the continent and in the diaspora to make it possible for economic exchange. And that's people-driven. The new infrastructure should be driven by people, especially in our communities. So you're a proponent for this, you know, crowdsourced, highly democratized dispensation that I, I kind of buy into, I think, in in many respects, but I have heard skeptics suggest that a lot of the biggest, most impactful technological innovations of the postmodern era have been linked to proprietary activities. I mean, even the internet, I mean, we have the U.S. sort of military to thank for getting that going in a sense. And I suppose the question, you know, I've heard skeptics put out is how viable is this ideological dispensation you're, you're proposing? 
given, you know, how well capitalism has delivered on giving us Apple and, and Amazon and Google and Facebook and, and some of the things people might point to as important innovations that have been built on, on the internet. How is this not going to upend everything we've come to appreciate in modern living? It's not mutually exclusive. So let me be clear, like when we are advocating for people-driven standards, for democratizing people, creating standards for technological and regulatory standards for digital assets and a digital economy, that doesn't mean that people cannot create proprietary software. The only reason Bitcoin and distributed ledger technologies exist because they were made open source software that people could build on top of and improve, and people were incentivized to improve it. This is the same case. You can build infrastructure for Pan-African communities. You can build infrastructure using decentralized protocols like EOS, and then people can take those open source resources and build their own versions, proprietary or not. So similarly, for example, you can have regulations that are built between different groups, companies, private and public sector that are jurisdiction agnostic that a company in Zimbabwe or regulated in Ghana can take and customize to their own situations in their countries and their communities. And there's nothing wrong with that being proprietary. But the idea is that that resource developed to be jurisdiction agnostic, if it's customized to Ghana or Zimbabwe, is still tied to a jurisdiction agnostic resource that's created, in this case, in mind to create economic prosperity for Pan-African communities. So there's nothing longer proprietary, like, the, like quite the opposite. Like people could, should still continue to develop these technologies because they lead to innovation, like you're saying. But there needs to be open resources that are built by communities of people that want to build them to share those resources because that's how digital economies have thrived around the world. We should take the same approach because it works. To the point you're making, we're starting to see many, many big brands in the financial services industry and outside of it start to create blockchains of their own, for example, or dib-dabble with what they can build on top of things like Ethereum, for example. Um, and, and I suppose I, I like what you're saying. I think often... Um, for traditional thinkers within our sort of socioeconomic sphere, it's a zero-sum game because a lot of the rhetoric around digital assets seems to be rooted in a fundamental distrust in governments and institutions and, and this desire to see them get disrupted. What have you found, Felix, around that? Uh, not necessarily true. So the way I look at blockchain technology is it's a technology in human evolution. It's just a betterment of the internet. Uh, it's not necessarily here to disrupt forces or disrupt governments. It's just here to build a better world for all of us. Is it fair to say, though, Felix, that a lot of the ideology you'll find in many a white paper mm. um, around a proposed application within the distributed ledger space um, is rooted in some kind of rhetoric in that, in that direction? Yes, uh, in, in the sense that most people believe in decentralizing banks and governments and so on. I think that's yeah. what is For better or for worse, there. you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, for cryptocurrencies and stuff. We are telling a different story. We're saying you can take this technology and some of the characteristics of this technology and actually build something better for everyone. So it's not about disruption or anarchy or the creation of decentralized governments. It's about what can we do with this technology now that we know that we can be able to transfer assets easily to each other securely in today's internet. How can we use this technology to build 
better communities and better societies. I have a follow-up question for you, Felix, which is then how do we ensure that the value of these digital assets accrues to the average African citizen or global citizen even? Centralized control has delivered, you know, mixed results in in today's sort of global economy, right? And so I I suppose the fear in some is that as these assets are adopted, it will worsen a bad situation. In other words, it will basically enable powerful institutions and and large sort of corporates, it will help them centralize or consolidate their power over over humanity as opposed to actually hold them to better account. What do you say to yes. that? That's a very good, very good point, Andile. And I think that's why it's important to have people-driven standards. Because once you have people-driven standards, people can be able to see wealth inequality. They can be able to see problems in the environment and suggest standards that can be able to level the playing field. So having self-regulation of people-driven standards that then regulators and governments can can hear out or borrow from is very important uh, for Africa and, and for the world. And so Marvin, you know, what do you say to people who feel that the, the horse has bolted, that it's game set and match basically to professional private equity firms, high-tech early adopters, powerful institutions who've sort of ring-fenced you know, these technologies and platforms and are well ahead of a continent like Africa that's trying to organize itself and get involved? I see it more as an opportunity. So the reality is that there are many, many countries in the Pan-African communities in Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America that have not yet developed very strong digital asset frameworks, which is an opportunity to actually create those frameworks because these governments at some point will absolutely and delay have to develop these frameworks. And the fear is that they'll just copy and paste it from different regions around the world in developed, quote-unquote, countries, which is our pattern of legislation creation. We can't let that happen because they're not culturally context-specific. If that happens and regulations and regulatory approaches adopted by countries that are not ours, we put ourselves back in the situation we found ourselves in the first creation of the Internet where we don't even control any aspects of the Internet. So creating standards that are contextually appropriate to our communities and to our people are extremely important. And I'll give an example. In a digital asset space, one of the most fundamental and important transformations is that people can create digital identities. So I can have my phone. Instead of having my passport or my license and my driver's license and my documents that make up my identity that are kind of controlled everywhere, I can have a phone, my phone. And on there, I have an encrypted, secure access to an identity that is mine And when people want it, they request it for me, from me. In a digital identity space, for our people, there's a need to take into account extremely specific and complex aspects of our cultures and histories. So, for example, my last name is Colby. That last name is a name passed on through generations of Africans who were brought to the Caribbean as slaves. My history, just like many people in the Caribbean, we don't know our genomic history as Africans because it was erased. But... As Bahamians or Caribbean people, we should be able to travel freely in the continent because this is where we're from. But if you build a digital identity solution on my phone and I arrive to the Ghanaian border, to the Kenyan border, to the South African border, that digital identity in this world in the next 5, 10 years needs to take into account or have something built into it that says Colby is the last name that was passed through generations of Africans who were brought here. This is the genomic studies that inform that application being built. And the company that would built the digital identity needs to take into account those aspects of our culture and our history. Yeah, and if, if I can add on to what Marvin has said, 
I think the basic ideology here is we can shape our future and we can shape the use of mm. these technologies. So we benefit very little from either worrying or being cynical about the centralization of technologies in general. And we benefit more when we think about how can these technologies be used better. And that is why these standards cannot come from centralized structures. They can only come from the people and, and, and come through uh, open source principles. Wow. So the use case uh, Marvin made and, and, and your comment now, Felix, are a great segue into you know, discussing the framework that you, you know, are both putting forward here and inviting the rest of the Pan-African community to contribute towards. I want to challenge the very idea of needing a framework because it kind of seems in opposition to the, the whole ideal of democratization. Is it not comparable in some way to the calls we're seeing from various quarters to regulate the internet? Uh, and then, of course, there are people who worry that as this process progresses, there's a danger of, of governments or powerful institutions hijacking this process. What would you guys say to that? There is absolutely a need for frameworks. The last thing we want to do is develop a bunch of technologies and those technologies be shut down. Digital assets don't know what a border is. They don't know if they're in Ukraine. They don't know if they're in Kenya. They don't know if they're in the Bahamas or Canada. They're borderless. If you have countries who are right next to each other that develop different regimes for digital assets, that means that the people within those countries can't freely trade between each other. And that's a problem. The opportunity is if you sync those rules between Ukraine Kenya, South Africa, Bahamas, and Canada, those digital assets could move and have the same legal categorization between those different countries. If that does not happen, and there's rules that are different between the two, you literally prevent the people from trading between each other. So building in technologies is possible. Like a digital asset, we can build, we've built that move between those jurisdictions. That's not a problem. The problem is that each of those different governments will treat digital assets extremely differently which means that our technologies can't scale, which means that our people can't benefit from trade within each other. And that means that there's a need for frameworks because we can't just build technology. We have to build regulation. They need to be built together because this is an economic revolution that is both technological and regulatory. So challenging, I, I get what you mean. Like the, the, It kind of goes counter to the space and definitely did go counter to this industry at the beginning of the industry about 10, 8, 9, 10 years ago. But now, across the world, you see a bunch of different self-regulatory institutions popping up, a bunch of different governments who are regulating this thing, hopefully progressively, and companies and entrepreneurs and CEOs and COOs and, and CIOs who are taking more seriously the idea of regulating and creating positive frameworks. Because if we don't do that, we'll be squandering this opportunity. This is, um, we very much see this time in human history for Pan-African communities as a one-time opportunity. Our governments and our countries and our regulations were not built by us. They were built to be highly centralized because that's what colonial governments were built to be. And those highly centralized structures prevented us from creating structures and frameworks between ourselves to facilitate trade between our countries. This is different. There's digital assets that are borderless, which means that if we can create frameworks that exist between our countries, between our people, this is a one-time opportunity to get it right. If we don't, we'll be squandering a huge opportunity and we'll be kind of putting ourselves back in the situation we're in right now. So, Felix, I want you to build on the pragmatism, you know, Marvin has brought to the table here. I quite vibe with it. Um, you know, speak to what I call 
democracy extremists out there who who bristle at the very notion that anything within the space of firstly web enabled technology and then later sort of distributed uh, ledger technologies anything within the scope of of the beauty that has come to the fore as a result of these technologies anything in that space shouldn't be touched and should be allowed to evolve freely without any interruption or interference or regulation like speak to someone who's extreme on on that end uh and 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 sort of build on the argument Marvin has made for for me i i would probably come from this perspective we live in a very different uh setting pan african countries live in very different situations barriers to entry even to most of these technologies are very high in some of these african countries if we don't have a framework uh from which businesses and startups like my own can benefit there will be no growth of these technologies on the continent so we we are looking at a different situation than the one that we would have possibly in the first world where everyone is probably connected and you don't need uh, a lot of uh, government services and you can afford to be decentralized and so on and information spreads quickly in such settings in africa you find there issues even to do with internet connection so if you're going to benefit from distributed ledger technologies ai iot drones and so on we need to come up with frameworks that people can be able to plug into uh, quite quickly and that's why i'm saying pan africa and the peoples of african descent have to shape their own destiny when it comes to these technologies Marvin please flesh out what what the future might look like if we ignore everything you guys have said <laughs> let's assume we don't even give this conversation a chance forget this framework um on one side of the spectrum you have governments and and institutions and legacy institutions that just say you know what we like the way things are and we'll let the trends be set abroad and we'll adopt what we need as and when Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum is you know the the sort of quote unquote democracy extremists i call them who who go don't touch anything you know don't touch anything and let's imagine that we just proceed in this manner give us a sense of what 15 years from now the world might look like for the average african citizen the reality is that whether there's an open source approach or not that the fourth industrial revolution is going to bring a lot of pain to a lot of people automation people are going to lose jobs it's just going to be is going to be chaos for a lot of different people there is a pocket that exists that we can create that determines our own destiny like felix just rightly said if we don't create that pocket we'll be significantly accelerating what we go through right now which is that a lot of our countries don't control anything related to the internet or digital technologies and economies our data is being siphoned off from our countries extremely quickly people don't control it we'll be putting ourselves even worse in a situation because in 15 years the reality is that the fourth industrial revolution will bring a lot of pain to a lot of people and if we don't do this we will bring even more pain to ourselves when we could have alleviated that pain for future generations if there is an approach that creates a way for pan african communities around the world to trade directly with each other we would be creating a pocket of change for our people if we don't create that opportunity we'll be creating 
a ditch for ourselves, to be honest. Like, it's just economically, we would just be shooting ourselves in the foot. If we create those bonds, we could be significantly transforming the future of African people and generations across the entire world. We are distributed a network of people of 100, there's estimates, 140 million people in the diaspora, definitely probably more. If you unite those people with people on the African continent, you create significant economic change for anybody that is a part of those digital trade networks. And that could transform the future of what our communities and economies could look like for our children. Felix, I'm going to ask you the same question, uh, but I want you to keep it specific to Kenya. What does Kenya look like if this discussion ends here and we go, let's just see what happens <laughs> um, in 15 years? What does Kenya look like? I think it's going to be a bleak future if we don't address these issues almost immediately. One of the things I'm looking at, of course, is population growth in Africa. We need to create about 25 million jobs by 2025. Our populations by 2100, if everything goes well, will make up 40% of the world's population. Almost half of the world will be uh, from Africa, of one of the Pan-African countries. If we don't start thinking about how we can have an entrepreneur in Togo create opportunities for an, uh, for an employee in Kenya or an entrepreneur in Tanzania create an opportunity for somebody in Chad, uh, we'll be in a lot of trouble. I think African governments have begun thinking about it, and that's why they came and uh, signed the Africa Free Continental Trade Area Agreement. It's just that we probably need better tools, and distributed te ledger technologies are better tools uh, when it comes to achieving these particular goals faster. Because no one is resting in the rest of the world. Everyone wants to conquer Africa. Everyone wants to give us free internet so that they can mine our data, they can surveil our activities, and so on. If we don't start setting the right frameworks for Africa, it's probably going to be a bleaker future than most people imagine. So Adela, I think the fusion of the two things we're saying is that we face in a significant amounts of obstacles in the future, as well as in our past. Our past is rooted in obstacles. But our past is also rooted in opportunity way before those obstacles existed. So we have two options. Either we let the obstacles happen or we take this opportunity. There's two options. And the opportunity is obviously the better option that we, we're going to continue <laughs> fighting for because that's what our generation is here for. Man. Like the African Union, all these regional organizations were created by people who knew that pan-African unity was extremely important to economic prosperity for our people. It didn't shut off trade or the outside world. It wasn't meant to be against anybody else. It was meant to unite people who were similar and were scattered around the world. When you read the constitutive documents of the African Union and African Development Bank and all these institutions, at their root, they say they exist for African nations and the peoples of Africa. They created the tools that we can now build on in the technological age to make those things possible for the first time. Our governments have a hard time functioning. They need help. They need our help because it's just a new generation and we need to support them. And these kind of resources, these kind of tools, these technological and legal standards created by people can support them to create policies that help us as people. So what do you guys say to globalists who say, listen, all the projections you're making about you know, Africa's future and what it'll need, and what, what does it matter where the innovation or the ideas or, in fact, the economic potential for ensuring that Africa and the rest of the world succeed. What does it matter where it comes from? I mean, if the idea comes from 
or continues to come from the Western world uh, or the global north. What's wrong with that? I mean, surely we shouldn't be encouraging something that almost sounds like, at its worst, a populist idea that makes Africans think for and by themselves, you know, at the expense possibly of the rest of the world. Yeah, every time you mention a word, every time people mention the word Pan-African, they think that it's meant to shut off Pan-African communities from the rest of the world. That's absolutely not the case. Africa and the continent is an extremely important part of human history. Like communities around the world, countries around the world, societies around the world would not have survived and built themselves if it not was for Africa. So African communities and Pan-African trade networks benefit everybody just as they benefit people apart of those Pan-African trade networks. It doesn't shut out. It's not a color thing. It's not meant to be black or white. It's not meant to be tribal. It's not meant to be linguistic. It's not meant to be culturally specific. It's meant to create economic prosperity for everybody because Africa has always been an economic engine for the entire world. So having these Pan-African communities is not meant to be shut out or populist at all. It's meant to say there's an opportunity for Pan-African communities to expand trade between each other because they can, because people only trade economically when they have cultural similarities. It makes it easier to trade. You can have a company in Ethiopia that produces shirts with designs that will probably sell better at Howard University in America than they would sell in a community in Ukraine because there's a cultural similarity. So it's not shutting out from the world at all. When you read the rhetoric of the AU chairperson Kagame, he's faced this issue all the time. And he says, us saying that we can create pan-African trade networks is not shutting ourselves off from the other side, this, from the outside world. Quite the opposite. The outside world can benefit from us being a stronger united economic bloc because other countries do it. The European Union is a strong united regional bloc. When it was created, no one said that they were shutting themselves off from the other side of the world. Why should we be seen as that? It's not the case at all. So that's an excellent segue into discussing this white paper I have right in front of me, the African Digital Asset Framework, Mm -hmm. uh, People's Driven Standards for Distributed Pan-African Economies. Uh, Marvin Colby and Felix Materia, editors of this document. We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about the presenting sponsor for this series, Ray's. Now, RAISE is a founding member of the African Digital Asset Framework, or ADAF for short. ADAF is the first open-source software platform to create transnational standards for digital assets and distributed ledger technologies, in line with Pan-African development objectives. ADAF intends to complement the African Union's Single Africa Digital Market Initiative, which seeks to stimulate digitized Pan-African economic integration. Rays, along with Kotani and Alba.1, are proud to be co-trustees in and supporters of the African Digital Asset Framework. To find out more and to get involved with this groundbreaking open source initiative, visit adaf.io. That's adaf.io. And now, back to the conversation. Gentlemen, give us a sense of what you know we're about to delve into. Uh, You've given us a really great introduction in terms of why, some of the motivations, but now talk through the nitty-gritties, the practicalities of uh, collaborating to draft what I, I I think I I texted uh, Marvin the other day when he asked, you know, what I thought of it. I I basically said idealistic and pretty well written. It was my my commentary. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk us through the practicalities of putting this document together and then we'll dive into to explore some of its implications. Idealistic because there's too much negativity next to our people's names sometimes. So there's ah. a ray of light in that paper. 
I think it's saying something about our times that idealistic almost has this negative connotation, almost a sense of naivete attached to it, which it shouldn't, right? Not at all. I mean, like, how, how else do yeah. communities progress if not for hope? So yeah, absolutely. the paper... The so how, do we, how does this start? How does, how do, so give mm. us a sense of, one, we need this to happen. Two, who needs to be at the table to help this come together? And three, once it's come together, where to from here? Before that, though, um, so Felix and I were co-authors of the paper, and we want to say thank you to all the people. There's a lot of people who worked on that paper, man, from on the continent and in the diaspora. Uh, Alatash in Trinidad, Melina in South Africa, Jennifer Gabu and Mandela in Kenya, as well as Josiah Mugambi. So we had a lot of people work on the paper, and everybody contributed different aspects to it. And it turned out to be the only paper in the distributed ledger technology space that we know of that speaks about what it speaks about, which is um, very detailed research and development into the future of not just the continent, but the diaspora. Uh, it's certainly the first one I've encountered. And it's a beefy document. Uh, we're talking 37 pages of mm-hmm. uh, of solid uh, rhetoric here. So, okay, so you've given us an idea of who collaborated around this paper. Give me a sense of what drew you guys together. What was the glue? What was the cell? The cell? That's a good question, Andile. Why are we in a room mm. about to write a paper that's 30, 37 pages long uh, that will eventually be spoken about on a podcast? What's the cell to bring that illustrious group of people you've just listed off together? The cell was that there was an opportunity to transform our futures. And that spoke to people on the continent as well as in the diaspora because we all went through the same thing. We all have very, very similar histories. The way in which my country was colonized is extremely similar, if not identical, to the way in which Kenya was colonized especially because we had the same um, we had the same partners of colonial culture and position. So the cell was opportunity. And the paper, when you read it, it's, it's meant to be detailed. It's intended to be highly technical in what it talks about because we have to show that there's actual hard evidence that shows where we can go as a people. So the opportunity we painted to people who researched, who wrote it, who edited it, was that it was it was an opportunity and the paper never started out that way it was never intended to be what it was um felix and i spoke at an event in march in kenya mm. and there we spoke this was march 2018 yeah this year man and we spoke there about creating a framework for initial coin offerings so uh a way for companies to raise finance on the continent and in the caribbean such that they could fund their companies because obviously finding funding like you know and deal very well is extremely difficult. So it started as a framework for ICOs. So the way the, the research and development paper was a framework for ICOs for about three months until about July and we realized that the implications of it were much broader. Started to do the research. The research started to confirm where our thoughts were going and it developed into that. A detailed paper that shows where the African digital economy can go what digital assets present as an opportunity for our people, but most importantly, what those digital assets represent within the context of regional trade networks, which exist to create yeah. economic prosperity for peoples of Africa and African nations, and that's directly quoted from the Constitution of the African Union, African nations and peoples of Africa, which means that everything the African Union does, whether it says it or not, in the Constitution, in the heart of the African Union and regional organizations, is the idea that peoples of Africa and African nations can be economically united. So if you take those tools and those structures, institutions, and build technology into them on top of them, 
you have the legal basis for trade across distributed pan-African economies around the world. And it is a paper that was born out of a need, uh, really, because as, Ma- as Marvin has mentioned, after the particular event, we had a meeting with several organizations in the space, uh, in the digital assets space. And we realized that most of these organizations are facing issues to do with regulation, uh, issues to do with... What kind of organizations are we talking about, Felix? So we're talking about blockchain startups, um, everyone from payments to people trying to build health data on blockchain technology. All of them had come for the event. So we realized we sort of like face the same problems around regulation, developer training, and so on. And there was a need to develop standards and share these standards with governments all across Africa and beyond Africa into the diaspora and see if then we can be able to build a pan-African digital economy that allows value exchange. Yeah, right after we spoke to those companies, we realized that a lot of different governments in our communities had not yet created frameworks. And we didn't see that as a problem. We saw it as an opportunity. The opportunity was to create resources that they could just take that resources that were highly researched and specifically developed with pan-African thought theory economic communities and cultures in mind that they could just take and adapt to their situation so an opportunity to unite those governments as opposed to divide them so guys i have a question i mean when one thinks of like economics 101 when you think of capitalism is it not built on the notion of sort of exploiting inefficiency um you guys are introducing a story that Uh, in my view, puts forward a very efficient, upstanding idea of how to turn Africa into a hyper-functional digital economy. Given that, I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of some of the the challenges you might expect from various quarters who perhaps have come to appreciate the rather chaotic uh, status quo that exists in many parts of the continent? Uh, That's a good question. Having read the white paper, Without trying very hard, I can think of at least (laughs) a handful of very powerful people and institutions and organizations around the world who might not be entirely invested in that reality becoming coming true. Yes, we were conscious of the reality entire we drafted the paper and even on this podcast. So that's that's a reality and we can't do anything to really change that and delay. What we can do is create opportunities that allow people to have access to opportunities because they haven't had access to opportunities. Those opportunities exist and they're fully capable of taking them, but they haven't been made available because of the structures and economic and legal structures that have been built for us. So there's that reality, but we have another reality. Like Felix said earlier in the show, we choose to look towards the future and opportunity because the reality of these things that bind us and the obstacles that existed before and still exist, they're around. The engineered frictions, I call them. Mm-hmm. Engineered mm-hmm. frictions. They've been around for a while, man. Like my, my degree in undergrad was on post-colonial cultural theory, and I spent four years talking about them. At the end of my four years, I had done a, enough about them as I did in my first year because I just spent time talking about them. We, they exist, and they will always exist, but we see them as an opportunity. What you just mentioned, these structures of institutions and people that have gotten accustomed to the chaotic nature and division of our communities exist. We see it as an opportunity. The fact that countries on the continent were divided and diaspora people were scattered around the world 
who else in the world is better placed? There's, there's other communities, but we are best placed to take advantage of that because we have distributed people around the world who digitally already trade with each other. And these are going to remove the barriers to trade even more than they've been before. So we choose to look at that as an opportunity. These obstacles will always exist, but they actually created an opportunity the way we see it. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the same way the Jewish diaspora has certainly um, flipped a, a very unfortunate history into mm-hmm. into a pretty an prosperous, advantage. yeah, into a prosperous economic reality. All right, folks, so let's it's jump in. possible. And the reality is, Indili, before you go into the next section, the reality is that in the paper, we are very clear that the world is going to move towards these digitized trade networks. With or without us, right? With or without us, the world is going to move. And you see in the first section of the paper, it gives a very strong history of where trade networks in the in the normal economy have gone from a multilateral institution like the World Trade Organization to regional trade organizations to digital trade networks, which exist in Europe and Africa mostly. And the next evolution is the economic transfer over the internet between regional trade organizations. That is where the world is going with or without us. Um, you have distributed people all over the world. The Chinese, the uh, uh, Jewish people, communities, like you said, they exist in distributed communities and they already trade with each other. And it's only natural that our economies and trade patterns show that we are moving towards this anyway, which is why we paint it as either an obstacle, an opportunity. Either we do it or we don't. What you've just described, I, I consider the first pillar in what I see as a three-pillar foundation for this dispensation you guys are putting forward, the, the, the idea of digital trade networks as a natural evolution from what we've seen before. You know, Felix, t- talk me through the idea of distributed pan-African economies, and I'm quoting here, in practical terms, what are, what are, you, what are you suggesting here? So what we are simply saying is that digital assets can be exchanged across uh, African countries, but beyond Africa to the diaspora. And what enables this is most Pan-African countries share a common history. They probably share a common destiny because of their demographics. Uh, demographics across Africa are very similar. We have a very young population. Beyond Africa, uh, in places like Bahamas and Haiti and so on, it's not uh, such a different case. And so if you come up with uh, a framework or standards that enable people to be able to exchange value within these economies, then you're able to grow Pan-African trade. And that's simply the future that is the future that we're trying to build uh, using distributed ledger technologies. I would hazard that the most empowered members of the African diaspora aren't living in in places like the Bahamas and Haiti with respect. I mean, they probably are embedded in some of the most affluent nations in the world right now. And to me, that's where I see the challenge. I mean, the developed world has so far been content to to harvest the very best we have to offer, not just in terms of resources, food and, and minerals, but certainly the best we have to offer in terms of our talent and and find really smart ways of of taxing any potential returns Africa can make from diasporans living in the global north and, and other developed parts of the world. I see that as probably the biggest barrier to to seeing this come to fruition what do you guys think yes and no there's so i spent a lot of time i spent a decade in canada as as a law student and a lawyer and i worked in a lot of different communities there and i could tell you that the diaspora community is doing extremely well for itself like people are in well positions people are doing well there's obviously a population of people that that are not but 
there's a lot of strength in the diaspora in, in, in North America and Europe. But at the same time, there's a lot of strength in the diaspora in countries like the Bahamas and Haiti. There's a lot of economic trade and activity that happens in those countries in Latin America and on African continent and in Asia. There's, there's enough economic wealth to go around for sure. So the barriers that exist in developed countries where the diaspora communities exist will be a barrier to trade for sure, for a number of reasons, like the ones you just said. But there's also the opportunity to increase trade between countries like ours. The Caribbean in particular, my region, and Latin America absolutely has to do this because trade economic patterns around the world are not in our favor right now. So if we don't create digital bridges for trade with a continent like Africa, we're going to have a hard time. And at the same time, in my country and just as countries in our region, there's a lot of economic wealth that can be shared. We are a diaspora ourselves of the African continent, just like someone in Canada is a diaspora of Barbados or Trinidad or Ghana. We are also a diaspora, and there's a lot of economic wealth that can be happened between those networks. So the way we almost see it is almost like imagine an asset moving from Kenya to South Africa to someone in the Bahamas to Canada and back to Ghana literally trade networks that move between these regions and not necessarily only between Canada and Ghana. They move between these networks where you could have digital assets that move, when we say distributed pan-African economies. So I, I get you. So intra-Africa mm. trade um, mm. and then intra-Africa trade within the context of the diaspora wherever they are in the world. Exactly. Yes. So let me give you a very tangible example. So, right. so let me give you a tangible example. So I could be in my country in the Bahamas and through my mobile phone using distributed ledger technology software, I could invest securely in real estate in Angola. The money, let's say I make $10 from that and I hold a digital asset that represents my ownership in this real estate development in Angola. Someone in Canada who's a member of the diaspora from, let's say, Barbados originally can buy that asset, which means that they make a gain on that Angolan real estate originally. And then that person there can sell it back to someone in Ghana if they wanted to. Distributed pan-African economies we created as a definition specifically to denote the idea that pan-African trade is not necessarily only between the African continent and its diaspora. It's also between the diaspora and between the continent. So when you read the paper, we talk about intercontinental trade and between Africa and its diaspora, as well as trade among the diaspora, because that already exists. Remittances from North America and Europe to the Caribbean and Latin America was $70 billion. That's more remittances that came to the African continent last year. That's a lot of trade. And those people in, in North America, Europe, Latin America, and Caribbean are also just as similar as someone in the Bahamas and Kenya, culturally and, and historically. Gotcha. So we've addressed, I think, quite uh, substantively the you know two pillars the notion of digital trade networks as you guys have coined them the idea of distributed pan-african economies again as you've coined them uh let's talk about now the practical application of what you've called the african digital asset framework what is your vision here guys where is it housed who's involved how is it resourced in terms of output what what, what should we expect what should we hope what should we demand the African Digital Asset Framework is going to be, for now, an online repository where any company, any person can come and present standards for distributed ledger technologies and digital assets. So you can come to the platform and create a two-page document that says, these are the guidelines our company wants to abide by when we release 
uh, product for digitized healthcare records. These are the things we're going to maintain. This is how our consumers are going to hold their own healthcare records. This is how we built the application. Here's the code. People can participate in that. And then the way it's meant to work is that people can then say, okay, cool, I really like that standard. Let me adopt it and customize it to my situation in healthcare industry in Ghana. So the idea is to create a repository of standards that people can then take, adapt, and customize to their local situations. And, uh, African and when you say people, mm-hmm. are you, at what level do you mean people? Like define people in this context. Yeah, so in the paper we use the word peoples. And the right. definition we have for that is for anybody. Consumers, policymakers, entrepreneurs, public private sector, anybody that has a stake in that example I just gave in the healthcare industry can participate in creating those standards and adopting those standards. So we, the, obviously the first vertical and the first groups of people we target are people in the distributed ledger technology space who have companies as well as regulators. That's our two primary focuses because that's where the most urgency is needed right now. We need startups who are actually building technology and entrepreneurs in the private sector and enterprises. We need them to work directly with regulators and regulators to work directly with them because that is the most urgent need right now. But eventually the goal is to have anybody with a mobile connection to participate in standards. So one day I could have a company that built a digitized healthcare application for digitized healthcare records and someone who used those records in a rural community off the coast of Kenya can use their mobile phone, access the African digital asset framework application and, and provide comments or feedback on why the standard or application did not work for them. And hopefully the application will be tweaked to take into account that person participating in those standards. Yeah. So you, you envisit something like GitHub, it sounds like. In what, in what ways might GitHub be a good parallel in terms of like the functionality of this platform? And in what ways might it be it's, per, it's a perfect analogy. Okay. I think we even like mention it in the paper. Like the, we literally imagine this as a GitHub for technological and regulatory standards for distributed ledger technologies. The way in which it will be limited, and Dylan, that's a good question, is that Creating standards is a very touchy subject. You don't want people creating standards that are fraudulent. You don't want people imposing standards because they have more power than others. You need to have a mechanism that incentivizes people to contribute good information and disincentivizes people from contributing bad information. The entire distributed ledger technology space is built on incentivizing good behavior and disincentivizing bad behavior. Yeah, that's, that's the rub with crowdsourcing so the, uh, <laughs> regulation or, mm-hmm. or framework uh, material. Right. And that's, that's a big problem. So where we envision is going, as Afilis have talked about this now, is an actual pan-African protocol, uh, a set of software rules that allow people to create these standards and, like I said, use tools to incentivize and disincentivize good or bad behavior. The, the way the process works now is most likely ADAF will be a community of organizations. And once a particular organization makes a proposal of a standard around innovation hubs, around protocols, around initial coin offerings. Other organizations which are part of ADAF and which might be sort of like stakeholders within those particular industries and needing those standards will back a proposal. And depending on how many organizations back a particular proposal, the results will be on the open uh, website or web platform that will be launching. So you can see this particular standard is being used by 68% of organizations in Africa. This particular standard is being used by 37% of organizations in Africa. What ends up happening is you have 
a set of standards or resources that can be used by regulators, that can be used by companies, that can be used by people to be able to set up uh, distributed ledger technologies and distributed ledger technology companies on the continent. I imagine you're putting policymakers, corporations, and, and, other, and other stakeholders within our ecosystem in a position to decide what works best for their context, given what everyone else seems to be interested in doing. And I suppose the idea of consensus is key in the sense that if the outcome you are in, in favor of is being able to, for example, trade tokens freely across you know, the entire length of breadth of, of, of Africa you would need to be quite interested in what matters to Egypt or what's working in Chad or what's mm-hmm. yes or what's what is totally off the table in Kenya for example is, is am i right in thinking about this that way you're entirely correct you're, you're very correct so you're entirely correct one good example again is digital identity one of the first standards we are working with the community on is creating digital identity standards that is built to be Pan-African. So ADAF's role as an organization is to support and maintain this platform, but is meant to be infrastructure for anybody to build and contribute to. And the second role is that it's a research and development organization. So we contribute to research and sta- research and, and things that are built for us by us. So for digital identity, let's say that there's a technological and a set of regulatory standards for digital identity that takes into account regional trade economic tools and they take into account pan-african cultures and history let's say there's a source code so there's a base code that is the technological standards that are built to be interoperable between continents sorry countries on african continent excuse me when i'm in egypt or ghana or south africa and those different governments take and customize that source code to build their identity management systems even though it's customized to their local rules and customs and regulations, the source code is still meant to be pan-African, which means by virtue of customizing the rules, hopefully they would still be interoperable between different nations, which means if I have a digital identity built with that source code and protocol, I can move between Egypt, South Africa, and Kenya, even if the rules are customized because they've been built with the same source code that's been built by the community that's been built to be pan-African with pan-African-based research. Hey, listen, fellas, I have to tell you, I like this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really do like this. Now, I'm not naive to the to the challenges here. Uh, I imagine you guys are going to have to propose and, and find a solve for, you know, how to resource, you know, an idea this big uh, sustainably. I can already start to see, you know, disagreements starting to form around what's working here. I can see the various existing agencies and organizations and, and uh, institutions on our continent butting heads for supremacy around, you know, who gets to shout the loudest and, and perhaps not being quite comfortable with the notion of, you know, sharing an equal footing with pretty much every stakeholder, regardless how big or well-resourced they might be. I can see, you know, access- accessibility issues given Africa continuing to be behind the curve in terms of like, you know, the adoption of the internet, never mind distributed ledger technologies, never mind, you know, education, never mind financial literacy. I, I can also see challenges around the, the basic idea of why should I get involved? Like incentive, you know, what, what's your pitch to a Thomson Reuters, to a to an Ecobank, to a to an ABSA or to a consensus, uh, you know, to an, an, an everyday job like Andile, like, why should we be involved? Why should I participate why should i dedicate 
organizational and economic resources to to resourcing a future I may not be a part of. I might not be, you know, CEO at company X by the time this future comes rolling in. Why should I care? I say all of this to say, despite all that, I still dig it. And I'm still <laughs> I'm still hopeful. And I, I suppose I have to share that because I don't want our listeners to think, you know, I'm not applying the standard I try and apply if, to pretty much every conversation we have. Oversimplification is the enemy here. And I'm not suggesting for one second that there isn't complexity, even unaddressed complexity, even within this this white paper. But I am saying I think there's plenty here to serve as DNA for what I hope will turn into something quite amazing. I guess all, all of that to say that. <laughs> even if 10% of this worked, um, it's certainly worth the, the months of effort that um, the team you guys have assembled so far have put put into it. And it's certainly well worth the read for anybody who who cares about where the stuff is going. Certainly uh, an essential read for anyone tasked with with policy making, regulation. Um, but I don't think they should leave it at that. Perhaps in closing, I'll give you guys the opportunity to to make a call to action. Aside from reading this white paper, what are you hoping to spark with this white paper going into the world? Before we answer that, we want to be clear that the African digital asset f- framework focuses now on digital assets and distributed ledger technology. And the idea and vision, like you know, is to create open source standards to support the creation of those standards. But the model and the way we're building this technology is to be extendable to all other technologies in the fourth industrial revolution. That means drones, artificial intelligence, machine learning, any technology is going to happen. The same model can be applied. We're starting off with digital assets and distributed ledger technologies because they are foundational to economic value transfer, which is foundational to human societal interaction, which means we have to start here. And we need to, that is the biggest opportunity. So we want to be clear about that. And in, to answer your question... And you, and you say that, mm-hmm? and you say that I suppose, to, to give everyone a heads up. Listen, this is yeah. just the beginning. <laughs> this, is just, this is just a start. But this is where we had to start. Because if we don't create a way for people to transfer economic value in a world where technologies are going to be evolving rapidly and they don't have their own economic freedom, we're not creating a future for people. So we have to start here. So yes, this is, this is, this is intended to be just a start. And it's intended to be infrastructure for pan-African digital economy around the world. Okay. So Felix, tell us, what, what are you hoping um, this will spark? in a practical sort of next steps situation. Uh, what do you want Africa to do? Yeah. So my call to action will be first to make everyone understand that this is a first step, that we have considered most of these problems. We have looked at the opportunity. We have done research around the opportunity. We have seen there is an opportunity and there is a way to actually get to that opportunity. We know there are a couple of challenges, and that's why even in the governance structure of ADAF, we have tried to be open. We have tried to have tools like linking and double linking that enable consensus. And we know that member organizations are busy. So if you're a member organization and you're wondering how can I contribute to ADAF's work, my first advice will be to read the white paper and also to check out proposals that will be coming out on the, on the site. Because this is your greatest opportunity as a member organization to be able to effect standards, for one, and secondly, to be able to have these standards go on to become regulation Mm -hmm. or law in your country. One of the things that ADAF is doing very proactively is working with the AU and the Africa Development Bank 
because we understand that we can't leave these people out of the conversation. Secondly, if you're an entrepreneur, um, you're a blockchain guy out there, or you are in distributed ledger technologies, and probably in these other technologies for the fourth industrial revolution, same thing. Read the white paper, check out the proposals on the site. If you can be able to register yourself or register your organization and propose a particular thing that you like to be seen on the continent, uh, this is your opportunity to do so. On top of exactly what Felix is saying is that a lot of us are in this technology and in this space because we recognize the transformative potential it has for people. And a lot of us are very eager to contribute to standards that facilitate that. So we have ambassadors and we've clearly selected ambassadors who represent the African Development Bank, who represent African Union Infrastructure and Energy Commission, who represent Republic of Mauritius, Kenya, and a couple different other government representatives because we want to give people confidence that these standards will eventually become standards adopted by actual countries, which is why, like Felix said, we thought it was very important to work with regional organizations because they have the power to implement these standards regionally. We meet we, we meet monthly with, with in Addis Ababa with the African Union about this project, and there's, there's an opportunity to actually really create standards. So reading away the research and development papers, probably the first step. There's a shorter version on daily. It's eight pages, so it's fine. And... Um, <laughs> I challenge yeah. you to go the full yeah. distance, everybody. But I, I totally take your point. And I love how you're bossing it right now because it's like, listen, all people need to do is just spend some time to see who's already involved, who's come on board as an ambassador. You know, a lot of brand names you'll recognize, multinational organizations based here on the continent and uh, and outside of it who have an interest in, in what's brewing here. I, I have to say it was quite important to us, even as we partnered in, uh, with Ray's in, in highlighting the, the growing need for education in the area of digital assets was really quite important for us to sense that this wasn't one organization or one sort of really driven idealistic individual or even three or four. Kudos to, to the whole team behind ADAF, to all the individuals involved, big, you know, high 10 to you, Marvin and uh, Felix, for making yourselves available, yourselves and your organizations and your, your, your organizational resource available to make this something we all can sit down and talk about in uh, in real terms. So congratulations to you both. I sense that, you know, I have to override my sense to keep this conversation going because the point really isn't to be exhaustive here. The point yes. really is to start a conversation that we have no doubt will continue long past this particular podcast and even the series we're recording. And so with that said, I have to thank you first, Felix Masharia, uh, and of course, thank you, Marvin Colby, for both being on the show and for being part of this, uh, this series. Thank you, Antile. And we would like to say thank you to a lot of people who work in actively on a project as we sit in this studio. I mentioned the names earlier. Uh, Josiah Mugambi, who is a co-trustee of the African Digital Asset Foundation, along with Felix and I. He represents a company called ABBA One. Alataj Gervan, Melina, Linda Bonio, Keith Mandela, Jennifer Gitu, Norman Gabula, and tons of people, Ali Hussein, tons of people who've read the paper, who've been a part of the project, who've given advice on the standards, people in our community. We have an active WhatsApp group. There's tons of people behind the initiative. It's, 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 yeah. it's a community-driven initiative because... And this is where the Oscar all, music starts playing. <laughs> hey, that's the plan. We all no. face the same obstacles and we all have the same opportunity. And that's why everybody's working so diligently on it to make it happen. All right. Uh, you've given your people the shout-out. I thank you. 
Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Keep it locked right here at African Tech Roundup. AfricanTechRoundup.com. You can find it all. Cheers, man. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot, huh? Thanks, Indila.